Urban legends, horrifying tales that we've all heard or shared, that involve friends of friends or distant family members. Urban legends are stories told as if they were true, but are they based in fact or just works of fiction? I'm Lauren and this is The Truth Inside, Urban Legends Part 1. It was a wet autumn night and my friend Sarah was driving home following a catch-up with her friends. She was running low on gas and was starting to get nervous as she was driving in the middle of nowhere. But as she rounded a bend she could see a small run-down gas station in the distance. The place gave her the creeps but even though she felt apprehensive it was a relief to finally find somewhere to stop and fill up. Sarah pulled up, got out of the car and filled her tank. After paying at the pump she was about to leave, when over the speaker she heard the gas attendant say that her payment had failed and she needed to come inside. She hadn't noticed anything wrong when she paid, but not wanting to drive away without paying, she went to sort out the matter. As soon as she stepped inside, and before she could even argue with the attendant, he told her that while she was pumping gas, he had seen someone slip into the back seat of her car and he'd had to say something anything to get her inside. After calling the police, Sarah learned that the stranger in the back seat was a local serial killer who had hidden themselves away, ready to take Sarah as their next victim. Sound familiar? Let's dive into the world of urban legends. I've always been fascinated by urban legends, and even more so after the film Urban Legend 1998 was released. I'm not embarrassed to admit that I've watched the film on more than one occasion. Whilst not a hit critically, it was one of the first major films to depict urban legend and share the stories with the public. For those that haven't seen the film, the plot is simple, but I must warn you, spoilers are incoming. A group of students at a private university based in New England called Pendleton University are all systematically and brutally murdered, with each murder modelled after a popular urban legend. And that's where our story begins. In this episode we're going to cover three popular urban legends discussed or depicted in the film and explore the truth inside them. The film starts with a classic urban legend and the one I just shared with you. In the film, Michelle, our main character in this particular legend, is murdered by a killer in the back seat. The urban legend plays on our fear that danger is right under our noses and that we're not aware of it. And let's be honest, how many of us actually do check the back seat before we get in our cars? You'll also hear other variations on the story, so let's rewind. In the lead up to her demise, Michelle is being coaxed into the gas station by the creepy gas attendant. And whilst as successful in this endeavour, she is spooked and an escape ensues. Scared, she drives off. The plot comes to an abrupt end here for Michelle as she's brutally murdered by the killer in the back seat wielding an axe. But let's pretend she continues to drive off, only to notice a lone pair of headlights in her rearview mirror. The driver is flashing their lights on and off and gesturing wildly with their hands, trying to get her to pull over. Again, Michelle doesn't stop, 
She rushes home and runs inside to call the police. But when the police arrive, the horrible reality is revealed. The creepy attendant, the person in the vehicle flashing their lights, all were trying to save Michelle, for both had seen the silhouette of a man with an axe in the back seat. But is it true? Well, no, not really, or at least there's no tales that share the same backstory the mysterious gas attendant or the driver following behind flashing their lights. The moral of the story itself is valid. The gas attendant is usually deemed a scary man, someone the driver mistrusts without reason. The driver assumes it is he who wishes to do her harm, when in reality it's him who saves her life. It equally serves as a cautionary tale to be aware of our surroundings. If we do want to find truth in the legend, we'd have to go back to 1935, where a source claims there was a headline printed in the Palo Alto Times with the headline, Man lurking in backseat slugs girls, hurls victim to ground, steals car and purses. Whilst this comes from a credible news source, I haven't been able to find any confirmation that this headline did indeed exist. There is also said to be a vaguely familiar case in 1964 in New York, where an escaped murderer hid in the back seat of a car, only to be shot by the car's owner, a police detective nonetheless. I'll conclude this urban legend by saying, it can't hurt to check the back seat, right? That leads us on to the next urban legend raised by the film, Hatchet Man. Parker, one of the characters, tells friends Natalie and Brenda a story about Stanley Hall, part of the university in which they live. As quoted from the movie, it goes a little like this. There was a professor on campus, and this guy, he just flips out, goes completely berserk. He grabs a hunting knife and strolls into Stanley Hall, bangs on every door, and for every student that answers their door, he takes that little knife and cuts their throat ear to ear. Now he does away with an entire floor before finally stabbing himself through the heart. A murder on campus, a massacre of an entire floor, it sounds implausible, but listen up. Richard Benjamin Speck was born on the 6th of December 1941 to parents Benjamin Franklin Speck and Mary Margaret Carbor Speck. At the time of his birth, he was one of seven, with four older sisters and two older brothers. Speck was not to be the last child, however, with his sister Carolyn being born a couple of years later in 1943. Whilst he was born in Kirkwood, Illinois, the large family moved to Monmouth, Illinois shortly after his birth. Speck was raised in a religious teetotal family, but this was set to change when he was only six years of age, when his 53-year-old father died suddenly of a heart attack. The family dynamic changed once again when his mother remarried a few years later. His mother had met his new stepfather-to-be on the train, Carl Lindbergh. Carl was an alcoholic with a long criminal history spanning 25 years, with convictions that ranged from forgery to several DUIs. Over the course of the next 12 years, Speck's stepfather was noted as often drunk, verbally abusive and often absent. This chaotic lifestyle was also mirrored in their living arrangements. The family moved frequently, living in 10 different addresses over the course of time, often in poorer areas. This influence on his life seems to have had an impact on the man he was to become, 
with Speck picking up his own drinking habit, getting drunk almost every day from the early age of 12. To give you an indication of his lifestyle and choices, by the age of 24, Speck had been arrested 41 times. It's also probably the right time to tell you that he eventually had the words Born to Raise Hell tattooed upon his arm, which might just give you an insight into his character. From the years 1960 to 1963, Speck worked as a labourer, and in October of 1961, Speck met a girl that he was set to father a child with, 15-year-old Shirley Annette Malone. She was pregnant within three weeks of the meeting, and they were married within three months. Unfortunately, when his daughter Bobby Lynn was born on the 5th of July 1962, he was absent, serving a 22-day jail sentence for disturbing the peace following a drunken night out. Unsurprisingly, his marriage to Malone did not last. She filed for divorce in January of 1966, with this finalising in March. As mentioned earlier, Speck had a varied criminal history, and we could spend hours running through all of his arrests, but some of the more notable ones include attacking a woman in a parking lot whilst wielding a 17-inch carving knife in 1965, and stabbing a man in a knife fight in 1966, the same month his estranged wife had filed for divorce. So what happened on the 13th of July 1966, and how does this relate to our urban legend? Well, the story actually begins the day prior, on Tuesday the 12th of July, when Speck arrived at work to find out that his position had been given to somebody else. You see, Speck, with the help of his brother-in-law, had applied for a role with the US Merchant Marines to work as an apprentice seaman. On the Tuesday, Speck had gone to the hiring hall and had received an assignment on the SS Sinclair Great Lakes, and it was when he arrived for this assignment that he found out his spot had already been taken. He was driven back to the hiring hall, but this was closed. Without enough money for a rooming house, he ended up sleeping in an unfinished home on the same road. The following day, on the 13th of July, he picked up his bags and returned to the hiring hall. At 10.30, he was tired of waiting at the hiring hall for a job. The whole situation had caused Speck to spiral into a rage and embark on a drinking spree. During this binge, he met a 53-year-old lady by the name of Ella Mae Hooper. She spent the day drinking with him, up until the point that he held her up at knife point, bringing her to his room and assaulting her. It was here he stole her 22 caliber pistol and started walking the streets of the south side of Chicago. It was during this walk that he came upon the townhouse that functioned as a dormitory for nine student nurses at the South Chicago Community Hospital. Valentina Persone, Patricia Matusek, Melita Gargulo, Pamela Wilkening and Nina Schmel were inside the building, either asleep or resting but all were very much unaware of the imminent danger that lurked outside. According to another student there that night, Cora Amareo said that that evening around 11pm she heard four knocks on the townhouse door. When she opened it, she saw Speck standing there with a revolver in his hand. He pushed his way inside and made his way into the bedrooms. During the course of several hours, he held the women in a room, bringing them out one by one. In the midst of this carnage, two other student nurses, Suzanne Farris and Marianne Jordan, returned home and were killed upon their entry to the dorm. The women were either strangled or stabbed with intervals of 20 to 30 minutes between each murder. The final woman to arrive back at the dorm was Gloria Jean Davy, who was dropped off her boyfriend late that night. She was the last to be killed. She was only 22 years old.
As described by her sister, Laurie, Gloria was driven, independent, intelligent, headstrong, poised, creative and snippy when she didn't like what you were doing. There is a wonderful article in the Chicago Tribune which is noted in the sources that pays tribute to each of the women. I'd highly encourage you to read it. One lone woman did, however, survive. Cora. Cora escaped death by hiding under a bed while Speck was out of the room. We'll never really know how she survived, but during the course of the night and the unexpected arrivals, it's assumed that Speck lost count of how many women he had tied up. She stayed under the bed until 6am. Cora later identified Speck at trial, quoting, This is the man. After only 49 minutes of deliberation, on April the 15th, 1967, Speck was found guilty and it was recommended he receive the death penalty. Speck, however, wasn't to die via electric chair. The decision to sentence him to death was reversed. Speck was instead sentenced to eight consecutive terms of 50 to 150 years in prison, which was then reduced to 100 to 300 years total. He did, however, die at the age of 49, the day before his 50th birthday, due to a suspected heart attack. Therefore, based on what we know, this urban legend could pass as true. There's certainly been examples, such as the horrific story of Speck and his rampage, that tell us that things like this could happen. They are not out of the realms of possibility. Reassuring, I know. We now move from one dormitory to another. At the entrance to Stanley Hall, the characters Brenda and Natalie attempt to invoke our final urban legend, Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. Okay, so it only works if you stand in a darkened bathroom in front of a mirror. And by works, I mean that this ritual causes an apparition to appear, Bloody Mary, and reach out to grab, scratch, kidnap the summoner. To really understand this urban legend, we need to break it into two parts. First we have the mirror, and secondly we have the lady herself, Bloody Mary. Captromancy, or anaptromancy, is the divination, so the attempt to gain insight into a question or situation by way of a ritual, using a mirror. It's a form of scrying, which is a way to tell the future using a reflective object or surface. Think crystal ball. We've seen examples of this across history. Mirrors are considered portals into the shadow world. That's why if you break a mirror, it's said to create seven years of bad luck. In ancient Greece, sick people visiting temples would be instructed to look into a mirror. If a healthy-looking apparition stared back at them, it signified a swift recovery. However, a ghoulish apparition would mean their days were numbered. We know this through the writings of Pornasius, an ancient Greek traveller. Before the temple of Ceres at Patras, there was a fountain, separated from the temple by a wall, and there was an oracle, very truthful, Not for all events, but for the sick only. The sick person let down a mirror, suspended by a thread until its base touched the surface of the water, having first prayed to the goddess and offered incense. Then, looking into the mirror, he saw the presage of death or recovery, according as the face appeared fresh and healthy or of a ghastly aspect. There's also a Halloween tradition of being able to see your future husband in a mirror. It may sound a little odd, but as the myth goes, you should wait until the night of Halloween. Prepare an apple, a knife and a lit candle. When midnight strikes, 
you peel the apple in front of the mirror in one continuous strip and then with your right hand toss the peel over your left shoulder. Upon doing this there's debate over what happens. The peel hitting the ground could make the shape of your future husband's initial or another version being that you would be able to see what your future husband looks like should you look through the mirror. So we know the process of summoning apparitions through the mirror is based in fact, and there's examples of people doing this across the centuries. But who was Bloody Mary, and will she really pop out of a mirror should you call upon her? Historians have suggested she could be one of three women. So we'll begin by looking at Mary Tudor, so Mary I of England. She was the first queen to rule England between 1553 and 1558 in her own right. So that is to wear the crown without being the wife of a king. She was born on February the 18th, 1516, the daughter of King Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. She had a turbulent upbringing, namely when her father got remarried to Anne Boleyn when she was only a teenager. In order to marry Anne, Henry needed to divorce Catherine, and to do this he stated that their relationship had been incestuous, as Catherine had been his deceased brother's wife. This allegation made Mary illegitimate and not a rightful heir to the throne. With this, the now Queen Anne stripped her of her title and made her act as a lady-in-waiting to the child Anne had born with Henry, Elizabeth. Unsurprisingly, her relationship with Henry and Anne broke down. It was only after the eventual death of Anne, or execution to be precise, that Mary felt she could again reach out to her father and attempt reconciliation, although it would not be easy. Mary eventually agreed to admit the incestuous egality of her father's marriage to her mother, largely likely to save her life and the life of her closest supporters. Eventually, this granted Mary with succession to the throne after Edward VI. Edward was a child her father Henry had later had with the third queen, Jane Seymour. When Edward became king and later died in 1553, the country considered Mary the rightful ruler, and she was made queen at the age of 37. Why Bloody Mary? Well, Mary was determined to marry Philip II of Spain because she wanted to restore the Roman Catholic faith as a state religion. This made her a lot of enemies. When it became clear in 1554 that she would marry Philip, a Protestant rebellion broke out. Mary asked the citizens of London to fight for her, which worked, and her marriage to Philip ultimately went ahead. For the following three years, she ordered the rebels to be killed, with some 300 being burnt at the stake. This act gave her the name and reputation, Bloody Mary. Next in the running is Elizabeth Bathory, also known as the Blood Countess. Despite not being called Mary, the story surrounding her is compelling, and once you hear a tale, you can certainly understand why historians believe she could fit the bill. In 1610, she was accused of serial murder, She is reported to have killed at least 600 victims, with depictions showing her bathing in the blood of these virgin victims as a way to try and recapture her lost youth. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Elizabeth was born into one of the more prominent families in Central Europe back in 1560. Her family controlled Transylvania and her uncle Stephen ruled the country Poland. In 1574, when she was only 14, she married into another wealthy and powerful family. To illustrate this, as a wedding gift, her new family's husband gifted them a castle in which to live. 
It was in 1604 when her husband died that rumours of her violent acts of torture and murder really started to circulate, with these coming to a head in 1906. It was in 1604 when her husband died that rumours of her violent acts of torture and murder really started to circulate, with these coming to a head in 1609. She was accused of killing not just peasant women, but women across a series of noble families, and her cousin, the king's highest-ranking representative, Georgi Thurzo, was ordered by the king of Hungary, Matthias, to investigate these murders. Her cousin determined that Bathory had tortured and killed more than 600 girls with the help of her assistants. A trial held in 1611 determined her guilt, and whilst her servants were executed, she was confined to her chambers at the castle given her status, and with her husband's family managing her captivity. In exchange for this, King Matthias's large debt was written off. Elizabeth later died there in 1614. Monday historians don't believe the rumours to be true. It's far more likely that given her wealth and status, there was a politically motivated reason people would say these things against her as a way to occupy and obtain her lands. Finally, we have Mary Worth. Now, she could be one of two people. The first Mary Worth is said to have lived back in the 1860s. Bob Jensen, a paranormal investigator and leader of Lake County's Ghosts and Society in Illinois, stated that Mary used to bring slaves in via the Underground Railroad and sell them back down south to make a profit. It's believed that she also dabbled in the dark arts and this resulted in her being executed on her own property. The second Mary Worth was believed to be a witch executed in the Salem Witch Trials. I say believed because there's actually no proof that she existed. If she did, it's unlikely she was in fact a witch, but this is how the story goes. Many people believe Mary was a witch because she lived in the forest and was known in the town for selling herbal remedies. When children started going missing, the townsfolk looked at Mary as the culprit and despite her pleas of innocence, she was tied to the stake and burnt for practising witchcraft. That's your lineup for who Mary could be. I'll let you decide who you think fits best. Finally, I thought it would be interesting to share the Japanese legend of Hanako-san. Although not entirely mirror-related, it does have strong ties to the Bloody Mary urban legend. According to the legend, Hanako-san is the ghost of a young girl who haunts school bathrooms. As goes with the majority of these urban legends, there's variations as to who Hanako-san is. Some say that during the air raids of World War II, she hid in a school bathroom whilst playing hide-and-seek, and died when the bomb struck the school. Others say she was being chased by abusive parents who finally caught up to her in the bathroom, and modern tales will say she committed suicide there. Regardless of origin, the legend goes that if you go onto the third floor of a school and knock on the third bathroom stall three times and ask, Hanako-san, are you there? If she is, she will reply, yes I am. When the summoner opens the door, she will pull them into the toilet and into hell. It's basically the Japanese version of Bloody Mary. To summarise, would you find me calling Bloody Mary into the mirror? No. Although it's highly, highly, highly improbable that anything is likely to happen, I won't tempt fate just in case. We've heard tales of maniacs hiding in our cars, bedrooms and bathrooms, and I hear you asking the question, is anywhere safe? 
Well, yes, because fortunately, as we've discovered, all of these urban legends are indeed just that, legends. They are unauthenticated narrative accounts of rare or bizarre events that usually only stick around because of their dramatic content, which causes us to have these strong emotional reactions, and because of technology, which allows them to circulate indefinitely. For example, email chains and social media. While stories have changed across the years and people will have slightly varying accounts, usually the core theme will remain the same and they'll still contain the same warnings and advisements. Check the back seat, don't answer the door to strangers. Urban legends are designed to play on our fears, but as we've uncovered, while some of these may have been inspired by or share some similarities to true life events, that's where the connection ends. Thankfully. Thank you for joining me as we discuss the truth inside true crime, mysteries and legends from around the world. As terrifying or as uncomfortable as the truth may be, as Theodore Roosevelt once said, in the end the most unpleasant truth is a safer companion than a pleasant falsehood. Until next time.